Inside Chicago Government. It can be aimed at you and your home. ShyGov.com. Welcome to another in a series of interviews with Ben Jarofsky. I'm Dave Glowitz. Ben Jarofsky writes on government and politics for the Chicago Reader, and he's here with me today. Welcome to the broadcast. Thank you, David. Here among the flowers. <laughs> yes, we are. There's flowers on the table. Today we're talking about your article that appeared in the Reader on April 11th, 2013, mm -hmm. and it's titled The Lessons of Jane Byrne. Ah, yes. In this article, you describe what led to Jane Byrne becoming mayor in 1979, mm -hmm. the parallels to the ascendance of Rahm Emanuel as mayor, mm -hmm. and what it all might mean for the next mayoral election. I was feeling very nostalgic as I explained at the start. So I felt a history lesson is required. You remember Chicago Fest? Yeah, of course. Chicago Fest. There's a Jane Byrne connection there because... Um, well, she started it, didn't she? Well, not only she started it, but there was the boycott. In the, I don't know if you were in Chicago. The, I my was. My memory that you left at some point. Yeah, it was right after that. But I have a vivid memory of being on Navy Pier with a beer in my hand for Chicago, Chicago Fest. Fest. Yeah. Well, you should have been boycotting it. The Reverend Jesse Lewis Jackson was organizing a boycott. And as I recall... And don't quote me on this, but I believe Cool in the Gang was performing. I love Cool in the Gang. I will now sing a Cool in the Gang song. No, I won't. Uh, anyway. <laughs> Thought um, I'd get a song out of I was almost going to sing uh, Brick House. I'm not sure Brick House is a Cool in the Gang song. Now that I think about it. <laughs> no, he was a Cubs announcer. <laughs> yes. It, but I was going to sing Brick House anyway. So that boycott was one of the demonstrations that sort of built momentum toward Harold Washington announcing that he was going to challenge Jane Byrne in 82. So by then, Jane Byrne had pretty much alienated everybody who had voted for her, or a large segment of the population that voted for her, particularly the black community, which had overwhelmingly, significantly supported her against Bolanik in 79. So that's the parallel I was drawing to this time, that she was elected in large part because she was the recipient of black votes. In those cases, black voters just had enough of machine politics uh, now, Rahm Emanuel was also elected as the recipient of black votes. In his case, it's different. He was the recipient of the overwhelming love and adoration that black voters in Chicago have for President Obama. Which we've spoken we've of. We've spoken Let me of. take you back, though, to the parallels. In your article, you wrote that Rahm Emanuel and Jane Byrne's predecessor, Mayor Michael Bolandic, quote, have this in common, an arrogant indifference to protests in the black community, yes. unquote. Can you give me some examples of that? Talking about Rahm Emanuel now? I'm interested in Bolandic specifically. All right, Bolandic. Well, Michael Bolandic, he succeeded Richard J. Daley, who died in office. And so there's a succession that's charted out. And the person who was next in line was Wilson Frost. If you followed the secession chart, the position he held in the city council warranted that he be the next in line. And so what happened was that the uh, aldermanic powers that be, in those days it was a guy named Ed Burke, who still is an aldermanic power that be, and a guy named Eddie Berdoliak, who's long since passed, got together and cut a deal with Frost in which he agreed not to uh, take what was rightfully his, the office of mayor, and instead uh, support Michael Bolandic, who was the 11th Ward Alderman of Bridgeport. That just really never sat well for all, a lot of reasons with a lot of black constituents. And this was just one of many 
sort of examples sort of symbolize the machine's almost hostility toward black voters. You could go back to police brutality situations that led to Ralph Metcalf breaking from the machine. You could go back to the 1972 insurrection against Edward Hanrahan, which was a direct result from the Black Panther raid. So it's just this whole development of an independent voice in black Chicago where black voters were openly rebelling against the Democratic Party, the local Democratic Party. So Blandick was just sort of a continuation of that. He was a continuation, and he was completely tone deaf to that. He didn't make any significant appointments in terms of uh, leaders in city government uh, that would show that he recognized that there were wounds that had to be healed. He didn't make any significant economic development decisions. And he was only in office for, what was it, two years? I forget, something like that. And so he just was going to carry on the status quo, to use Mayor Rahm's favorite term. And so as a result, the situation was ripe for a massive vote against him in the black community. And then, as you know, Dave, there was that huge blizzard. The icing on the cake. Icing on the cake, thank you. So anyway, that was the situation in 1979. Now here we fast forward to, what are we, what year is it, 2013? And Mayor Emanuel is very confident in that he will win the black vote, or he's confident that it won't matter that the black vote has shrunk and uh, they're not a force that he has to be concerned with. And so um, he's making a series of very unpopular moves, most notably closing schools. Let's talk about who he's not ignoring. And I specifically am talking about a Sun-Times article that appeared on April 11th by Franz Spielman about Wrigley Field renovation and the delay of a deal that potentially involves new parking and owners of rooftop viewing venues. And Spielman wrote, quote, Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel desperately wants to deliver a deal that could generate 2,000 jobs, et cetera, et cetera. She goes on to say, but he has not been willing to roll over Alderman Tunney or agree to details that mean millions, but must go through a planned development process that involves the politically active Wrigleyville community. And I'm comparing this to the black community, to which you say <laughs> yeah. Rahm Emanuel yeah. is indifferent. Is there any comparison there? Yeah, that's a great, a good job, man. That's uh, excellent. First of all, okay, now we're going to talk about Wrigley Field, which I will write about when it's, you know, I'm just following that one. Um, well, just as an example. As, but as an example, yeah, absolutely. He is very uh, cautious about alienating white voters on the north side of Chicago. I first saw this when the library fight, which I know we've talked about several times before, which is one of the few times that he's done a complete, if you recall, in the first budget he had in 2011, uh, he was really tone deaf to library users, and he was going to cut back their hours. I believe Monday he was going to close Monday in the branches, and already the libraries were uh, understaffed. Um, If you use a library, you know Books aren't on the shelf. They don't have enough people. Uh, There's been a series of cuts throughout. It's just typical Chicago's so cheap in some areas and so generous in others when they're doling out TIF dollars to developers, etc. So there was an outcry. And give Rahm credit for this. He was smart enough to see that Northsiders used libraries too. That was a sort of an awakening for him. He didn't realize that before. He thought they all got their books from Kindle. So uh, he backtracked and brought back Monday, and so all's well on the north side. So it's similar with Wrigley Field. It's just a small area, relatively. You know, there's a lot of money there. Um, if people really were angry at him, they might throw their support behind a challenger and raise money for him and uh, be an important symbolic community. And, and it's just he just doesn't want to pick a fight with them, so he's very cautious. But in contrast, this <laughs> school stuff... 
It's like, we got to do this because this is good for you. You know, they go through these hearings, which are required by law, but he's made it clear from the outset that uh, he's determined to close the schools pretty much regardless of what happens in the hearings. So there's an obvious contrast in styles. Spielman called these people politically active, the Wrigleyville community. In the same reader issue that your article appeared in was an interview with author Lance Williams. And something he said, which I'll paraphrase, he said, once people get organized, the organization evolves and matures. But he said it's not in the interest of those in control to have organized communities. Do you see any issues like school closing or you know violence that have the potential to give the underpinnings of organization to blacks in Chicago like some of these other white communities? There's definitely the potential. I think the school closings struck a nerve. Which way is it going? On the one hand, the teachers' strike mm-hmm. had a citywide effect, whereas one could view the school closings as fracturing people because they're all over the place and now individual communities are forced to fend for themselves and maybe against other communities. You're right. That's a good point. I mean, that's the difficulty. That's the um, obstacle for opposition. I mean, what he did in some ways was very skillful. I'm going to steal an idea from the great McDumkey. This is one of his favorite theories. And that is he put a lot of schools on a list. By he, you mean the mayor. The mayor, the all-powerful. He put a lot of schools on the list and then didn't close them said you're under the threat of being closed, and they didn't close them. So the list was once at 300-something. Then it, the serious list was at, what, what 129? I get them mixed 129, up. 129, yeah. Yeah, and then he ended up with 54. So if you do the math, that's almost 80 schools that are relieved. So knowing Chicago voters the way I know them, there's a good chance that they will actually appreciate the mayor because he spared them. So And go back to sleep. They'll go back. and they'll, Or more, moreover, they'll think they have some kind of special clout with the mayor. It's sleepwalking. This is my, my favorite subject. I mean, the mentality of Chicago voters, it just never ceases to amaze me how easily they're manipulated. Again, I'm just trying to tease out this idea of black empowerment similar to the level of whites having it. I can see, according to your rationale, people who came to these school closure meetings that you and I attended, mm-hmm. and then when their schools dodged the bullet, walking away saying, Rom's the man. Yeah. Or this is the other brilliant thing that Rom did. Okay, so most of the school closings, to use this example, like mental health, we, do, we could do a mental health closings, you know, water exemptions for homeless shelters, outsourcing city jobs, all the cuts that he's made that have hit hardest at poor black neighborhoods relative to the rest of the city. If you're a white voter on the north side of Chicago and you have a job and your school's not been closed and your sole source of information is the Chicago Tribune, you go, well, you know, well, he's got a point. So people are always like, the further they are away from the destructive impact of a governmental decision, the more objective they are. Well, a man's got a point. You know, I don't know how many conversations I've had with white Northsiders that always begin, well, you know, he has a point. I read that tone in letters to the editor from Suburbanites. Yeah, the Suburbanites, yeah. Burr Ridge. Well, you know. He's got a point, you know. Of course, if it was their school or their library or their city service that was under siege. Ben, you got to write a story. They'd be on the phone. Oh, my God. Here's all the information you need. There'd be threats of lawsuits. But when it's happening to somebody else, well, he's got a point. So I think he's very skillful at this. Gets to the point I'm saying. He's limited the hit to certain areas with the idea being that they're, they have the least amount of money and the least amount of clout. And so there'll be the least amount of resistance. And the rest of the city, which is relatively free, of these cuts will say, well, he's got a point. I, on the other hand, 
am so old-fashioned. I'm like, I just think that cutting the investment in communities that government represents at a time when they're already struggling is the absolute worst thing you could do to exacerbate all the problems that exist in that community. And I believe personally that government should be doing what it can to fortify the weakest communities among us. But apparently, you know, I'm in the minority here in the city of Chicago, a, a position I've grown accustomed to, Dave, over the years. So politically, I would say the odds are against defeating Rahm Emanuel. But the point of writing this story, this little history lesson about what propelled Jane Byrne to office is to say, well, it has happened once. And in particular, it happened with a candidate who was on the surface very flawed. They don't get, I'll put it kindly as I can, they're no more maverick than Jane Byrne. She came pretty much out of nowhere. She was not an elected official. She had no significant political support to speak of. You know, they made fun of her. And they made fun of her for the typical, you know, men making fun of women condescending attitude. So, you know, if she could do it. Nick Spazzato. Nick Spazzato. Bob Fioretti. Scott Wagespacher, Rod Sawyer, the list goes on and on, you know. I think in some level, Dave, it's just important for Chicagoans to at least once in their lifetime <laughs> show that they're not puppets and that they have the capability of voting against a mayor who's, you know, the way he runs the city is contrary to what you think their worldview is. We're talking about the most liberal city in the country, or one of them. They vote over 80% for the Democrats, except for people like yourself who are even more radical than the city. So anyway, they vote for all these, you know, liberal Democrats for president or what have you, and then they vote for like a Mitt Romney Democrat for mayor. It's very odd, bizarre behavior. Well, they vote for the rock star. That's good. Yeah, they vote for rock stars, in which case Mick Jagger should be our mayor. Hmm. More on that <laughs> later. Thanks for joining me today, Ben. You're welcome. Listeners, we welcome your questions and comments via Facebook and Twitter. Search for Inside Chicago Government. Email us via contact at shygo.com, and you can subscribe to automatic downloads of all of Inside Chicago Government's print and audio reporting on your web at shygov.com. This is Dave Glowatz with Ben Jarofsky. Peace.